Let's begin again. This presentation that we're about to enter into is probably the most important presentation of the entire series. We talked yesterday about what was at the center of that core. Of all things that we want, at the center, at the core of that new day, is every person's desire to be loved and feel valuable. That's what sets us free. When that cup becomes filled... That's what sets us free to experience emotional healing, to experience forgiveness, to, to exercise forgiveness towards others. That's what enables us to become fit and healthy, to become spiritually whole, to become mentally alert, and to become, believe it or not, even financially uh, free. It has effect even on our finances. But all of that boils down to what we're going to look at in these next 45 minutes. The most important presentation. I want us to begin. I want you to look at the board this afternoon. We talked a little bit about this yesterday, but I want to flesh it out just a little more. A violation is defined as when loss is inflicted by one party against another unwillingly. How many would agree with me? If you agree, say yes. You have a violator and a violated, and the Ted has inflicted the loss against the violator. And I want to emphasize this is a loss that they are unwilling to bear. But has it been inflicted upon them nonetheless? Yes. Did I say it backwards? Sorry, the Ted. It's been inflicted upon the Ted against their will. In order for the scales to be balanced now, in order for there to be equality to both sides, I won't say justice. If I were to ask you what justice means, we would get as many definitions as we have people in the room today. But in order for both sides to be equal, what would have to happen over here? Okay, there would have to be loss inflicted against the violator, Greater loss, lesser loss, or equal loss? If it's less loss, it's unjust. If it's greater loss, what is that called? It's called vengeance. And notice the nature of that loss. It would have to be a loss that they are unwilling to bear as well. Would that be equal? That's all I'm asking. Would it be equal? Would it undo this? Would it make that okay? Would it make it better? No. Wouldn't solve anything. All it would do is make both sides what? Equal. This is the dynamic in which many Christians have tried to explain the gospel. God is the violated. We are the violators. And who should have suffered now? But God sent who? Jesus. And he suffers that loss so that we don't have to. Anyone ever heard that gospel presentation before? That version of it? What's wrong with that? It's not fair. How is it not fair? He's innocent. Let me ask you this. If I was found guilty of murder in the state of Texas, why Texas? 
And my wife went to the judicial system of Texas and said, you know, Herb, because I love, you know, Texas, because I love Herb so much, why don't you let me go to the electric chair for him? What would the judicial system say? No way, never. Why? She didn't do it. I have a friend who has a real hard time with how Christianity has many times explained the gospel because they look at this and they say, but Jesus didn't do it. How can an innocent person pay for the sins of the guilty? And not just that, how can one innocent man pay for the sins of an entire guilty world? That produces some legal problems, doesn't it? Be honest, doesn't it? Sometimes we're not willing to face those as Christians. We just want to brush over those and say, well, you know, he's God. The gospel must make sense. If it's going to be more than just religious, if it's also going to heal us emotionally, the gospel must make sense. It can be foolishness and nonsense and be religious, right? But if it's going to make a practical difference in our life, it needs to make sense. Let me illustrate it this way. What if a thousand people stole money from you? Any one of you. And you somehow, in the kindness of your heart, rose above that thievery and you chose to forgive every single last one of them. How many would suffer in that situation? Just one. Who would it be who suffered? It would be you. Would the people you forgave, would they suffer? No. Would it cost you something to forgive them? It's interesting, this is the scenario in which Jesus always explained the cross. And let me flesh it out for you so you can understand it more clearly. In Luke seven forty-two, look at what he said. When they, the two debtors, had nothing to pay, it says he, their creditor, he went out and found someone else to pay off their debt for them. Is that what it says? It says, it doesn't bring up a third party here. This parable does not involve a third party. It only involves the creditor and the debtor. Got it? And what does it say the creditor did? He frankly forgave them both. And this is what I want to zero in on. The word forgave. What is the nature of forgiveness? What does it look like? What does it cost? And whom does it cost? You see, forgiveness by its very nature is where, number one, this person is let off the hook. How many would agree with me so far? But notice it's different. If someone else, if some Joe Schmo came along and let this person off the hook, would that be right? What makes forgiveness different? He's still let off the hook, but somehow it is right. What makes it different? Yeah, Yeah, it's not some Joe Schmo. Who is it that's letting them off the hook? Who is it? 
It's the violet. Ted, do they have the right to let the person who has wronged them off the hook? Do they have the right to do that? Does anyone else have the right to do it? But do they have the right? Yes. Will it cost them something to do that? What has to change? Yes. This unwilling becomes what? They willingly and voluntarily now simply bear the sin against them so that this person can go free. Now notice, I'm going to make a theological distinction here for you. It may seem like only technicalities, but as you reason it out to its furthest logical conclusion, it will either, the wrong view will leave you either in emotional bondage and the, or the right view will set you free emotionally. The wrong view states that there's a third party here. Jesus, whom God substituted for us. The right view says that Jesus was not a third party. Jesus was who? He was the one we have sinned against. He's the violated. And He substituted Himself. He bore that loss willingly. He did it. So we can go free. That's not three parties, that's two. And in one word, what is it called when the violated willingly bears it so this person can go free? In one word, what is that called? It's forgiveness. Isn't that what Jesus used in the parable? The creditor frankly forgave them both. Did it cost him something to do that? Did it cost the debtors anything to be forgiven? But did it cost the creditor something to forgive them? And this is the beauty of the gospel. That this third person is not just some third person. He's not even a third person. He's the other side. He's the one we've sinned against. This being we see suspended between heaven and earth and between two thieves is not just some innocent man. He's who? He's God Himself, the one we've sinned against. And He's engaging in a divine act of forgiveness. And every act of forgiveness, by its very nature, is where this person should suffer, but this person substitutes Himself in their place so they can go free. Now, can anyone else be substituted in their place? No. Remember, that would be third party. And what would that be? Be unjust. It'd be unfair. It'd be wrong. But can this person choose to bear the loss so this person can go free? And what does justice have to say about that? Absolutely nothing. Why? Have you ever read stories of people in history who have engaged in great acts of forgiveness towards those that have wronged them. Anyone ever read stories like that? Like Corey Tim Boom and how she forgave that SS soldier at the trial. Do you remember that story? Anyone ever read that story? When you read that story and you read stories like that, what do you feel inside as you're reading those? Anyone care to offer? What do you feel? What's that? Release? What else? 
Can't believe it. Anybody ever just looked at it and said, wow. Anybody ever done that before? Anyone ever felt inside, man, I'd like to be big enough to forgive like that. Anyone ever felt that? Nobody ever looks at it and says, unfair. Why? Because this is the person that was wronged. And do they have the right to drop charges if they should so choose? Yes. Because it's going to cost them someone something and no, no one else. It's only going to cost them. And they can choose to do it if they want. Does the Bible support this? Look at John 10 verse 30. Jesus said, I and my father are how many? One. This means Jesus wasn't a third party. Who was he? He was God. Jesus goes even further and says, don't you believe that the father is where? In me and I am in the father. That's how they related. I am in the father. The father is in me. He says, the words that I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it's the Father living where? In me, doing whose work? His work. You see, if it's a third party system, your picture of God will always remain tainted. Because what you will feel, whether consciously or subconsciously, you will feel, well, Jesus loves me, this I know, because he was willing to what? die but who are you inadvertently always still afraid of what would he have done to you had jesus not come what we're virtually saying is if three parties is correct that god doesn't care who suffers innocent or guilty somebody just better and that is what he is fixated on somebody needs to pay That's not what Jesus taught. Jesus taught, I am not coming as some removed third party. I and my Father are how many? Matter of fact, He's living where? In me, doing His work. You don't need to be afraid of Him. He went so far in verse 9 to say, He who has seen me, do you see that there? Has seen who? Don't be afraid of God. He's in me doing this. Everything you see me do, it's Him. If you've seen me, you've seen Him. I haven't come as some third party. I'm God, the one you've sinned against. And I'm coming so you can go free. Where was the Father? In Jesus. Was this true of every moment of His life? Was it true when He was born? Was it true in His childhood? Was it true in His adulthood? What about up into his ministry? Was it true in his three and a half years of ministry at every moment the Father was in him? Was that true? What about Gethsemane? Is it true even in Gethsemane? What about on Calvary, suspended between heaven and earth and two thieves? Is it true that in that moment God was still in his Son? Is that true? But didn't Jesus cry out, My God, my God, why have you what? Forsaken me. Did Jesus cry out those words? But the question we need to answer is, did God really forsake his son on the cross? Now, did Jesus feel forsaken? Once again, is there anybody here that's ever sinned? Have you ever felt like God has abandoned you? 
that God has separated from you because of what you've done? Is there anybody here that's ever wrestled with feelings like that? Be honest. Have you ever wrestled with that before? I ask you in that moment, though you may feel like God is far away, is he really out there? You feel like he's abandoned you, but where is he in that moment? I would suggest to you that's actually when God is the closest to you because that's when you need him the most. When you feel like he's the furthest, that's when he's right there. What is it that's making you feel like he's far away if he's right there? It's your sin. Do you remember the torment? And I ask you, when Jesus took your sin upon him, do you think it would affect him any differently? Did it make him feel like his father was far away? When all along, where was the father? Right there. And his son. How do we know this is true? Because look at 2 Corinthians 5.19. God was where? In Christ. And what was he doing? Reconciling the world to himself. And notice what it says. Not counting their trespasses. What does it say? Against them. In one word. If the violated is not counting the trespasses against the violator, in one word, what are they doing? They're forgiving them. Do you know what this means? That this God, this being, is not just some innocent man, as some would like us to believe, is not just some good teacher. This person on the cross is God Himself, the one that we have sinned against. Let that rest upon your mind and heart for just a moment. Ponder that. What does that mean? This is the God that we've sinned against. In Ephesians 4.32, Paul said, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God, what does it say? And Christ also has what? What did Paul see Calvary as? A grand repayment? Of a third party to God? For what you had done wrong? Is that how Paul saw it? Paul said, no, it was God in His Son forgiving you. Does it cost something to forgive? Was there something paid to forgive us? Yes, but what was paid was not an imposed cost, but the intrinsic cost to the nature of forgiving a violation against a party. Are you hearing me today? What did it cost him to forgive us? This is the most important question we can answer. It is at the heart of this answer that all emotional healing springs What did it cost the God of this universe to forgive us for everything we've ever done wrong? Everything we've ever done against Him. What did it cost Him? I would like you to turn with me all the way to the back of your handout. You can look at the rest later as homework. Actually, we're going to begin on the bottom of the third page. It'll spill over to the final page. But I want you to see here in Psalms 88. Do you see that there at the bottom? If you see it, say yes. Follow it with me. This is a messianic psalm. And I want to be very clear here. A messianic psalm is not like other psalms. 
a messianic psalm not only speaks about what David would go through, it also prophesies about what the Messiah would go through when he was to come. Psalms 22 is a messianic psalm. Psalm 69 is a messianic psalm. Psalms 88 is one as well. And here David writes in prophetic vision of what the Messiah would go through. He writes, I am reckoned among those who go down to the pit. According to Isaiah, was Jesus numbered with the transgressors? It says, I have become like a man without strength, forsaken among the dead. Did Jesus feel forsaken? Yes, it says, like the slain who lie in the grave. And then I want you to underline this next phrase. Whom you remember. What are those two words? What does that mean? You'll remember no more. Catch the permanence of this phrase. When Jesus said that in his heart and in his mind. When he felt that, did Jesus at that moment feel like in three days I'm going to be resurrected? Look at the permanence of this. I'm going to go into the grave and be remembered when? No more. Now don't get me wrong. Were there times in Jesus' life when he said he was going to be resurrected on the third day? Was he aware of that? Yes. And was Jesus resurrected on the third day? Yes. Matter of fact, even on the cross in those first three hours, he looked over to the thief beside him and said, you'll be with me where? In paradise. In those first three hours, where did Jesus see himself ending up when all this was said and done? Remembered no more? What? In in heaven. But something happened in those last three hours. And I'm not clear myself on what all of that was. All I know is at the end of those final three hours, he was on the cross for six. At the end of the last three, he was not saying, you'll be with me in paradise. He was saying, God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me, God? Why have you abandoned me? Now hear me, had God forsaken his son? But did Jesus feel forsaken? And was God, was Jesus going to be resurrected on the third day? But in that moment, did Jesus feel like he was going to be resurrected? Do you understand the difference? This is what I imagine happened. I believe Satan was close to Jesus on the cross. How many believe he was present there? I believe he pressed close to Jesus' heart. And he began to whisper, Jesus, don't you understand? Sin is so hateful to a holy God that this is going to separate you from Him forever. Now don't get me wrong. Does God hate sin? Yes, and why does He hate it? Because of its intrinsic results. Isn't that true? God hates sin with a hatred as strong as death. But what part had Satan left out? That although he hates sin... With a hatred as strong as death. That the God of this universe loves sinners with a love that is stronger than death. But he conveniently left that part out of the lie. God hates sin so much, this is going to shut you out from him forever, Jesus. This is not just a bad weekend trip. This is it. You are going to go into that grave and be remembered no more, Jesus. 
And then do you know what I think Satan did? He took all the glories of heaven. He took all the adoration of the angels. He took that reuniting embrace with his father. Can you imagine it? He brought all those before the mind of Christ. And then he goes to the adoration of the angels and he compares them to how many times people like Herb Montgomery would fail to give him the adoration he deserves. And he says, this is going to be it, Jesus. Do you really want to trade all of that for him? And, God, and Satan began to whisper, Jesus, save yourself. Do you remember what had been said to him all day long? If you're the Messiah, then what? Save yourself. And Satan began to whisper, save yourself, Jesus, save yourself. Don't you realize you cannot save Herb and save yourself too? You will either save yourself at an infinite loss to Herb or you will save Herb at an eternal and infinite loss to yourself. Jesus, save yourself. And he took all the glories of heaven and paraded them before his heart one last time. And do you know why I'm a Christian today? Do you know why I serve God? Because that Friday evening, my God, he looked straight into the heart of heaven itself. He took in all of its glory. He took in all the adoration of the angels. He took in all of the reuniting embraces with his father. And then he looked at me with both eyes open and he took in all of my shortcomings. He took in all of my failures. That's my cell phone this time. <laughs> he took in all of the times when I would fail to give him back everything that he deserves. And in spite of all of that, love for me still surged in his heart. And he looked into heaven and he looked at me and looking back at heaven, he said, heaven is not a place that I desire to be if that young man cannot be with me. He said, if I am faced with saving myself at his eternal ruin or at saving him at my eternal loss, then I choose him. I love him. I will give him my place in heaven. I will save Herb Montgomery at any cost to myself. And feeling as if he would never see the light of day again, he bowed his head and he died for me with no hope of a resurrection. And uh, if that's really what he's like, if that's really what God is like, hear me, I have met a lot of people but I've never met one who would give up their place in heaven for me. I've met a lot of people, but I have never been loved with that kind of self-abandonment, that kind of other-centeredness, that kind of selflessness. My life has been affected by many things, but it has never been affected the way it's been affected by coming in contact with Him. My life will never be the same. Whether I serve Him or not, my life will never be the same. And people say to me, Herb, 
I do seminars all over the world for all kinds of people from all walks of life. And they come to me and they say, Herb, what if you're wrong? What if there is no heaven? What if there is no hell? What if all of this is just wrong? What if you get nothing back? What if there's no punishment, no reward? Do you know what I say to them? I learned it from my daughter. Do you remember yesterday's story? I look them square in the eye and I say, with all due respect, I don't give a rip. Because my God, my God lived for me when there was no heaven in it for him. And even if there is no heaven, even if there is no hell, even if there is no punishment, even if there is no reward, this God that I have encountered is so selfless. He is so beautiful. He is so other-centered. He is so self-abandoning. I have never met another being like this. If this is what he's truly like, if he is that self-giving, then even if there is nothing that I get in return, he is simply worthy of my love and adoration and service for the rest of my waking years. He's just worthy of it, even if we get nothing back. Is there anyone here today that agrees? I want to ask you today, as we have considered so much this weekend, and we're closing this section on emotional healing with the cross, is there anybody here today who would have the courage to admit that today you felt something in today's presentation? That something happened in your heart today? Would you have the courage to admit that, that you're feeling something right now? Would you be willing to sum up in one word what it is you're feeling? Just one word. Adoration. Love. Any other words? Peace. Any other words? Gratitude. Amazement. Anything else? Appreciation. Yeah. May we spend the rest of our lives just saying thank you. Anything else? Yes. That's a lot of words, but I like them. Anything else? Holy, holy, holy. Anything else? Relief? Yes? Yeah. Anything else? Blessed? Anything else? Joy? Anybody here feel unworthy? You don't know my past. You don't know the mistakes I've made. But I look at God and I say, God, give up heaven for someone else. But don't do that for me. I'm just not worth it. And do you know what I feel him saying to me every time? He says, Herb, I didn't do it because you were worth it. He said, I did it because I love you and you can't change that. Anybody here who feels hope today? Is there anybody here who feels forgiveness today? Do you feel forgiven? Is there anybody here who feels loved today? Is there anybody here who feels loved by God? Is there anybody here who feels the strange miracle of love being awoken in our self-centered hearts back towards Him? Is there anybody who feels love toward God today? 
Anybody who would like to say, God, I love you back. I don't know what that means and I don't know how to express it all the time. But I'm willing to learn. I want to learn how to love you the way you love me. How many would like to say that to him today? I want to invite our, our, our deacons to pass out a card this afternoon. Those of you who have the cards and the pencils, let's do this rather quickly. I have a special card for you. Remember what we said yesterday? That at the heart of every human being, what do we long for above everything else? To feel loved and to feel valuable. Does the, today, do you feel loved by God? Do you feel like you are valuable to Him no matter what you've done? Do you feel like you are valuable to Him? Go ahead and pass those out. It's not just dry theology. It is right here at the cross that we find our deepest needs met. Do you remember what the psalm said? That if we can encounter Him as He really is, every desire that we have would be met in full measure. Are you tasting of that today? How many would like what you felt today to become more consistent in your life? To live here with that cup so filled that it brings such emotional healing that you can reach out and start reaching out to others and helping them experience a new day as well. On this card, I'll wait till they all come out. I did have one. Thank you. Here, I do have one. It's right here. There are three boxes here. And the first one it says, and I don't know who you are, I don't know where you come from today, I don't know your background, but once again, God doesn't care where you've been, He only cares where you're going. First one says, Dear Jesus, I accept you today as my Lord and Savior, and I would like more information on baptism. Do you remember what we said about baptism? It's not about taking a bath, it's about having a clean conscience. Those of you who have been baptized before, when you came up out of that water, did you feel that psychological and emotional, that peace? Did anyone ever feel that before? You want the dawning of a new day? You want to follow Him all the way? If you'd like more information about that, that's all you're requesting. You're accepting Him as your Savior, and you're saying, I just want some information on this baptism thing. What's it about? Then check that first box. Number two, says, Lord, I've accepted you and been baptized before. But I too want to thank you for loving me, forgiving me and saving me. Today I rededicate my life to you as my Savior and my friend. If you'd like to be the friend of God. For many of us, he's been our Lord. Would you like to be his friend? And check that box. And there on that third box, if you're struggling with something or something you've heard this weekend doesn't make sense to you, or maybe it does and you want more information and you would like a visit, all I want you to do is check that third box, give me your name and your phone number, and I'll get in touch with you this week. If you don't feel comfortable with someone coming to your home, I don't care where we visit. We could visit at a McDonald's for all I care. Do you understand what I mean? We have a place over there we can visit. We can meet here. We can meet there. We can meet anywhere. If you would like to visit and you've got something you're wrestling with, I want to help you find the life that God made you for. Amen? And so check that third box. 
Let's close this afternoon with a word of prayer. Precious Heavenly Father. Lord, as I look at the cross, there are no words to say what I feel. All I can say, Lord, is thank you, thank you, thank you for all you have ever done for me. I am truly sorry, Lord, for all the times that I have fallen short, for all the times that I have failed to return that love to you. I'm sorry. You didn't deserve that. But Lord, today I want a new beginning. I want the dawning of a new day in my life. With every eye closed and every head bowed, if you would just like to say to the Lord today, Lord, I want to be different. Just raise your hand. I want to be different. I want a difference in my life. Lord, you see those hands, and I lift up every single one of these people to you today. I commit them into your keeping. Father, guide us. Teach us what it's really all about. Make us different people. Heal us. Change us. Save us in spite of ourselves. In your precious name, we pray all this. Amen. Now hear me. Does this mean you'll be perfect from this moment on? But the next time you fail, hear me. The next time you make a mistake and you fall short, you'll have one of two options. You've sinned and all of that torment, will that come back? Because it's intrinsic to that sin, is it not? The new sin will produce new emotional results. And in that moment, you'll have one of two options. You'll either let all that shame and guilt make you think God's against you, and that's one option, isn't it? And you'll get down on your knees, and you'll repent again, and you'll plead and beg God, please. You'll just forgive me this one time. I promise you I won't do that again. Anyone ever prayed that prayer before, the promising prayer? What happens when you promise Him you won't do it? You do it again. And after you do it again, how do you feel? Even worse, so you get down on your knees and you start to beg and plead again. God, please, I just took my eyes off Jesus. I mean it this time. Please just forgive me one more time. I promise you I won't do it again. And what do you do then? You really promised this time, but what do you do again? You fall again. Now you feel even worse and you get on your knees and you beg and you plead and you get up feeling like you wrestled him, you changed his attitude towards you. Am I making this up? Has anyone ever been there? You've changed his mind about you one more time. You've arm wrestled him and won. You get up feeling good and at peace. Because now he's with you again. You can go through all of those cycles. But do you know what the end result of those cycles are? One morning you're going to wake up having sinned too many times. After you've promised him you wouldn't. And you just don't think you have the strength to convince him to forgive you one more time. And so you know what you do with it all? The decision you made today, you take it and you just chuck it. There's a way that seems right into a man, but the end thereof is death. That is an option, but brothers and sisters, that's the wrong option. Option number two is this. The next time you fall, and I'm not saying you have to, but the likelihood that someone in this room is going to sin again before the Lord comes back is pretty high. And the next time it happens... 
and all that shame and guilt come back, no matter what your feelings tell you. I want you to remember what's taken place today and I want you to fight the fight of faith. Will you do that for Him? That no matter what sin is making you feel about Him, that you will not choose to believe the lie at that moment. That you will by faith hold on to the truth that the God of this universe loves you more than He hates your sin. That you are still His child. That you are still the apple of His eye. That He is standing before you just like He stood before that woman caught in the midst of adultery saying, I do not condemn you. Will you choose to fight the fight of faith and see Him like that in that moment? If you do, do you know what that will cause? Genuine, heartfelt repentance. You'll get down on your knees and you'll say, Lord, thank you for still loving me. I'm so sorry. Pick me back up. Put me back on the path. And that road leads to life everlasting. Will you stay on that road for him? God bless you. Thank you for being here today. This concludes our section on emotional healing. The seeds of everything you need to experience emotional healing, you have now. We're going to begin Tuesday night with fitness and health. How many would like to experience better health once again? You want to be healthier. Well, please, don't miss Tuesday night. They're starting the the drawing attendance on Tuesday night. If you don't know where we're meeting, we're going to be ending meeting here. We can't continue to meet here, but we're going to meet right across that field. You can see it from here even. There's a church over there, and we're going to be meeting right there. Please be there Tuesday night. God bless you. Thank you so much for being here today. We'll see you then. Have a safe trip home. God bless.